Harvard Divinity School. Dhamma Chakra Day, Buddhism and Emancipation of Marginalized Classes in India, October 19th, 2023. I heartily welcome everyone to this beautiful evening. Uh, and we would like to dedicate a few minutes for building a peace in the world. Uh, that's what the event was also tried to do in India. So we're dedicating few minutes for peace building in the times we all are experiencing and passing through. So traditionally on this day, uh, three refugees and five priests was chanting, uh, chanted on their day by one Burmese monk. So here we got Sumita. So I would like to invite him to uh, chant uh, three repujas and five precepts for us. So, distinguished professors, colleagues, and friends, as my friend uh, Santosh, Dr. Santosh said, I'm going to present the, uh, the going for refuges and five precepts in Pali, so you can be part of that. Just you know, being silent because I'm not going to ask everyone to repeat after me as it happens traditionally. So, I'm going to just present it in Pali. <coughs> Namo tasse bhagavatu arahatu samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavatu arahatu samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavatu arahatu samma sambuddhasse Buddhang saranang gajami Dhammang saranang gajami Sanghang saranang gajami Dutiyampi buddhang saranang gajami Dutiyampi dhammang saranang gajami Dutiyampi sanghang saranang gachami Tatiyampi buddhang saranang gachami Tatiyampi dhammang saranang gachami Tatiyampi sanghang saranang gachami Panati pata veramani sikha padang samadhyami Adinna dana veramani sikha padang samadhyami Kame su michachara veramani sikha padang samadhyami Musavada veramani sikha padang samadhyami Suramiraya majjapamadathana veramani sikha padang samadhyami Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu Thank you. Bhantiji has recited uh, five precepts in uh, Pali and in India we recite 
uh, in call and response uh, in Hindi or local languages. But uh, I'll just uh, recite them in uh, English. It's in call and response. Those who want to join, they can join. Otherwise, you can just listen. With deeds of loving kindness, uh, I purify my body. With, with open-handed generosity, I purify my body. With, with stillness, simplicity, and contentment, I purify my body. With truthful communication, I purify my speech. With mindfulness, clear and radiant, I purify my mind. So I'm uh, extremely grateful and thankful. First of all, I would like to begin our uh, evening with that, with the director, Professor Stang, and uh, team of CSWR, and the uh, coordinator and team, and Professor Monika Jonathan, for really a great support for organizing such a uh, event, which is needed for uh, uh, the message of the Buddha to spread in the world. Uh, at the same time, it's a very unique uh, evening in the sense for a unique event that has happened in 1956. Uh, Dr. Ambedkar embraced Buddhism against the all caste violences or the any kind of oppressions or discrimination against women or minorities or upper lords. He wanted to dismantle the structure to establish the equal, just, peaceful society. And uh, by uh, denying all means of violence, he went to the feet of, of the Buddha. So I'm just going to play a uh, uh, seven minutes clip so that you can have a feel how it was looked like in uh, uh, 1956. There was a great movie uh, which won the National Award. Uh, and. Uh, made recently, uh, uh, 10 years back. So I'm just going to play that clip just for uh, Buddhist conversion part. So that was the mood in 1956 uh, uh, after uh, 10 years of independence. What happened after his conversion to Buddhism, they inspired by the spiritual values, but they left unattended by the guidance. And uh, that's the process and researches are happening across the uh, Indian uh, society, what they should follow. So that's what we are going to hear from a uh, uh, panelist. But for that, uh, now I would uh, humbly request uh, Director CSWR, Professor Stang, to come on the dais. Good evening and welcome. My name is Charles Stang. I have the privilege of serving as the director here at the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard Divinity School. 
Since its founding in the late 1950s, the CSWR has been at the forefront of promoting the sympathetic study and understanding of the world's religions and spiritual traditions. It has supported academic inquiry and international understanding in this field through its involvement with the study of religion at Harvard, its research efforts and funding, and its public programs and publications. And from the very start, the study of Buddhism has been one of the center's priorities. Another priority of the centers has been the promotion of religion, peace, and social justice, which is the specific theme of our annual Greeley Lecture. Beyond promoting research and programming, the center also serves as a residential community. Each year, we bring together students and scholars from across the country and across the globe, from diverse religious and spiritual backgrounds, in order to create an open, supportive space that nurtures academic exploration and collaboration. This year, we are privileged to have Dr. Santosh Raut as part of our residential community. Dr. Raut has come to us from Hyderabad, India, where he is a faculty member in the Department of Aesthetics and Philosophy at the English and Foreign Languages Institute. His publications focus on the interconnected themes of democracy, Buddhist aesthetics, and women's empowerment and education in India. Here at HDS, he is one of the Buddhist Ministry Initiative's International Fellows. Dr. Rao was the first of the center's residents this year to present his work to the community as part of our regular residential research talks. We're grateful to him, I am grateful to him, for introducing us to the legacy of Dr. Ambedkar and his efforts to emancipate marginalized populations in India through large-scale conversions to Buddhism, just as we saw, and to promote social equity throughout India. We are pleased and proud to partner with the Buddhist Ministry Initiative in hosting tonight's event and to be able to bring these important topics to the attention of the broader Harvard Divinity School community. We also want to give special thanks to Dr. Rout for his leadership in envisioning and executing this event and for inviting leading scholars and writers in the field to share with us their research and perspectives. So I extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Edelglass, Professor Torat, and Dr. Vundru. I'll now pass the baton, or the mic as it were, to my colleague Jonathan McCransky from the Buddhist Ministry Initiative, and then to Dr. Rout, who will introduce each of our distinguished speakers. Thank you, and welcome once again. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, it's so wonderful to see such a great turnout for this event. Uh, my name's Jonathan McCransky, and I'm the Multireligious Ministry Initiatives Coordinator in the Office of Ministry Studies here at Harvard Divinity School. And in this capacity, I have the privilege of managing the activities of the Buddhist Ministry Initiative here at HDS. Um, I'd first like to thank our generous hosts and co-sponsors for this evening, the faculty and staff of the CSWR, many of whom are here. Um, and uh, you've been our constant partners and friends in many of our programs, and so we really thank you for, for your continuing friendship on that front. And I'd, of course, also like to thank our convener, Dr. Santosh Rout, and it's an honor to have you with us at HDS. 
The Buddhist Ministry Initiative at Harvard Divinity School uh, was the first of its kind at a divinity school within a research university in the United States. Uh, and it trains future Buddhist religious professionals in terms appropriate to modern global conditions. Drawing on the strengths of Harvard's faculty resources in the academic study of religion and Buddhist studies, as well as spiritual care, the BMI coordinates a range of courses on the history, thought, and practice of Buddhism and in the Buddhist arts of ministry. The initiative also supports the field education of Buddhist ministry students in hospitals and other sites of pastoral care and leadership and offers the insights of Buddhist textual traditions and practices to students from all religious traditions who study ministry at HDS. And as part of the Buddhist Ministry Initiative's efforts to build connections to Buddhist ministerial movements in Asia, the initiative offers a limited number of special scholarships each year to individuals who are deeply engaged in Buddhist communities in Asia uh, to come join us as BMI International Fellows for the year. And uh, Dr. Santo Shroud is one of those fellows this year, and we're most honored to have him with us. And we're extraordinarily fortunate to have him here. Um, I've already learned so much from him uh, in my capacity with the initiative, and I know all of our students have as well, and our faculty. And so we just really want to thank you again for organizing this program and for your leadership um, here in the community. And uh, yes, please. Yes. And um, I'll also just note that the, the topic for this evening, um, Buddhism and the Emancipation of Marginalized Classes in India, is a very timely and important one for the BMI and indeed for Buddhists and non-Buddhists around the world. And uh, the work of the Buddhist movement started by Dr. Ambedkar in India is a model for all of us in standing in solidarity with those on society's margins, uh, particularly as we seek to integrate a commitment to emancipation and justice in all contexts and in all forms into our work in deeper and greater ways. Um, and so we look forward to learning from our speakers this evening and from Santosh over the rest of his year with us. And so without further ado, let's continue with the program. Thank you. Uh, dear friends, uh, most of the scholars on Dr. Ambedkar, uh, those who are deeply studied him, uh, understands his political career, social career, educational career. He was in Columbia, studied in uh, London School of Economics, wrote Indian Constitution. Both uh, Buddhist and non-Buddhist, everyone appreciates him with the sympathy, the struggle he has gone through his life, uh, uh, including those who are in power and those who are not in power. Everyone appreciates him for what he has uh, brought to India, what he has done to India to hold the largest democracy of India uh, in the world. Uh, and everyone is proud of that. Uh, but most of them could not understand uh, in, uh, at times, even uh, on his scholarship, the last days of his life, that the real democracy comes out of spiritual values or on the basis of Dhamma. Uh, that angle uh, is missed, uh, and recently, the scholarship and research fellows are uh, working on this. And in fact, when he said that, uh, uh, used the word liberty, equality, and fraternity, he said in BBC interview 1954 that I did not borrow this word from French Revolution, but I borrowed from my master, the Buddha. And he said that fraternity is another name of Maitri, the metta, the friendship. That's what he uses. And that's not a Fraternity is not an equipped word for the democracy that I wanted to define. 
uh, I have to borrow the word from the Buddha's dictionary, he says. And immediately after this event, he went to Nepal, invited by the king of uh, uh, Nepal, and he was addressing not to the untouchables. He was addressing to the traditional Buddhist, communist, uh, and the what we call the left-wing uh, 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 activist. King asked him to deliver a message to them. And Dr. Ambedkar said, uh, violence is not a means to bring change. It's only the peace that can conquer uh, the enemies. Uh, if you kill the enemies, you are killing the uh, arguments also, which will pertinent for longer time. So we have to kill the wrong views, the mithya ditti. Uh, that's what he said. And he said that may Buddha's path appears to be long and tedious, but it's the surest way. That's the message he has given. So I think this is something that is fascinates the cultural, civilizational, and historical, and religious uh, history. I'm studying theology and try to learn and try to understand what all those projects are and how to navigate that. Because religion is such a thing, it's very delicate and sensitive to fall either side. Dr. Ambedkar was very uh, uh, peacefully trading path without a, uh, bloodshed uh, in his revolution he launched in 1956. For that, we have a wonderful speakers, very accomplished uh, uh, speakers and panel we have today. So uh, I will introduce, uh, first of all, uh, uh, Dr. William Edelglass. Uh, he is a director to uh, Berea Buddhist Center. Uh, William uh, is a director of studies at the Barre Center for Buddhist Studies, director of the five colleges, uh, uh, College Tibet, Tibetan uh, Studies in India, and adjacent professor at the Central University of Higher Tibetan Studies in Sarnath. William received his PhD in philosophy from Imori University, working on Indian and Tibetan Buddhist philosophy, as well as contemporary Western thinkers. His writings and teachings engaged uh, Buddhist studies, uh, environmental humanities, philosophy. William, William's recent publication have addressed mindfulness and ethics, meditation and well-being, the ethics of uh, difference and uh, climate change, B.R. Ambedkar's Buddhist political thought, nonviolence and justice, the spread of Buddhism and the contribution of uh, uh, Buddhist landscapes, the role of faith in Indian Buddhist literature on the path. Uh, William's most recent book, The Routledge uh, Handbook of Indian Buddhist Philosophy, uh, is published uh, in 2020. He's also a co-editor co of uh, Buddhist Philosophy Essential Readings, published from Oxford. And the Oxford Handbook of World Philosophy, that was in uh, 2011. Apart from uh, his academic accomplishment and the expertise, he's a, he's a great-hearted man, very gentle, and I think uh, what we study, what we uh, practice, that has an effect on our person. So that really resembles in his personality. So I would like to uh, invite uh, Professor uh, William to come on the dais and take his seat, please. I will introduce panelists and then I will leave and I will hand it over to everyone. 
Next on the list, we got Professor S.K. Thorat. I was not his direct student, but I am his student. <laughs> uh, while I was doing my master's, I was in the same university. And uh, he he uh, he's very well-known economist uh, and uh, policymaker in uh, India. Uh, he is a, a former chairman to University Grant Commission, which holds uh, all the universities together in India. He got Padma Shri Award, which is the highest citizenship uh, award uh, from Government of India in 2008, for contribution in social science uh, and education, the most prestigious award of Government of India. His research works focuses on agricultural de uh, development, uh, rural poverty, uh, institution and economic growth, problems of marginalized group, economic, uh, economics of caste, caste discrimination and poverty, human development, uh, thoughts of Dr. Ambedkar, uh, educational policies uh, among marginalized group, and also to some extent now he uh, picked up interest in the uh, philosophy of exclusion. So here I would like to invite Professor Thora to come and uh, take his <laughs> seat, please. We've got third uh, speaker or panelist on the board, uh, Dr. Rajeshekar Wundru. He's the author of uh, Gandhi, Ambedkar, and Patel. Uh, he serves as a chief secretary in Haryana State uh, Government of India. Rajeshekar Wundru, uh, uh, his book is translated into Marathi, Hindi, Telugu, and there are in processes many Indian languages. Uh, it's a very popular book uh, and bestseller book in uh, India. It's, uh, sort of critically engages with the electoral uh, system uh, in India and therefore the democracies. Uh, he has written extensively on Ambedkar caste, untouchability, Dalit history, literature, in EPW, uh, New Indian, Exp uh, uh, Indian Express, The Hindu, uh, Business Line, Times of India, Hindustan Times, Economics Times, The Tribune, and The Outlook magazines, which are very prestigious uh, uh, magazines. He is a recipient of the Dr. Ambedkar uh, uh, Ratna Award in 2016 from Delhi government. Uh, he received India International Excellence Award in 2019, uh, UAE, uh, and Dr. Ambedkar Bharat Peace Prize Award uh, in Nagpur 2019. Uh, Unru uh, belongs to India's premier civil services, the administrative services, since 1990 and uh, held a very high administrative position in federal and state governments. Currently, he holds a position as a chief secretary to government of Haryana in Department of Housing and Civil Aviation. So here I would like to invite uh, uh, Dr. Rashikar Wundru. <laughs> Thank you very much. so much, Santosh, for your warm introduction and for organizing this. And Professor Thorat, and Dr. Vundru, I'm really honored. Do you need to close the door? I'm really honored to uh, be here with you and honored to be at Harvard Divinity School and the Center for the Study of World Religions, which has such a great history. Um, and that the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies is connected with Mata is doing their field education placement at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. They are our fourth 
student and everyone has been absolutely fantastic. And we have a number of teachers from HDS and some board members and I am very grateful to be in relationship with HDS. Um, Charles, when you were talking about sympathetic interpretations of other traditions, I just wanted to note, you probably noticed in that clip that we saw that Ambedkar has some hard things to say about um, Hinduism. And if you study Ambedkar's work, and maybe some of what will come up here, if you are a Hindu, it might land in ways that are challenging. And I just want to acknowledge that at the beginning, and having just seen that clip, that that might land for us in different ways for different people. And in the tradition of sympathetic interpretations of uh, world religions, I just wanted to mark that and express that sympathetically. Santosh and I talked about me just giving a little bit of historical background. There are people in this room who know an enormous about about Ambedkar, and there's some people for whom a little bit of situating Ambedkar's conversion might be helpful. And so I'm gonna do that. And as Nietzsche says, I, I'd never trust a thought that I don't get while walking, and I am going to stand while I talk. So Ambedkar was born in 1891, the 14th child of a family who belonged to the Mahar caste, or the Mahar Jati. Um, Jati is an endogamous group that is typically associated with a occupation and is regional, as opposed to castes, which are trans-regional. And they are regarded as an outcast, what used to be called untouchable, but now we refer to as Dalit, most of us. Um, Dalit from the Sanskrit root dal, meaning broken. Um, and what that meant is for him when he was in school, he um, sat in a burlap sack that he brought home every night. He wasn't allowed to sit in the chair. His teachers didn't touch his papers. He wasn't allowed to touch the chalkboard. He wasn't allowed to touch the talk, touch the chalk. He wasn't allowed to touch the water fountain. And so for him to drink, the peon, the servant, needed to pour water into his mouth because he wasn't allowed to touch the cup. And if the peon wasn't there, as he says in his autobiography, waiting for a visa, he didn't drink. He went thirsty. So remarkably, he made it to Elphinstone College at the University of Bombay, where he graduated with a degree in politics and economics, and may have been the very first member of the Mahar Jati to graduate from college. And remarkably, through the goodwill of a very progressive leader in Baroda, he was given a scholarship to study at Columbia, where he went in 1913, and worked really, really hard with some remarkable people. He studied sociology, philosophy with John Dewey, especially economics and also history. And he managed to do um, a 
couple of masters, and eventually a PhD. He didn't finish the PhD until the 1920s. And in 1916, he went to London, where he lived at Gray's Inn, became a barrister, and also did a master's and eventually a PhD at the London School of Economics. His initial dissertation was rejected because he showed that British colonialism had a detrimental impact on the Indian economy, which his professors did not appreciate, so he had to rewrite much of it. Um, but it is a remarkable amount of work in those years. He studied really, really hard, and honestly, as somebody who's now spent a bunch of time thinking about Ambedkar and thinking about what scholarship can do, especially as we're in an academic institution right now, he is a remarkably inspiring and humbling figure for what the motivation to study and what scholarship can contribute not just to one individually, but to the world. But when he came back to India and took up service in Baroda, his staff wouldn't eat with him. They wouldn't, to give him papers, they would throw it at him across the desk. And he actually wasn't even able to find a place to stay. And so he had to leave service in Baroda. And he then devotes himself to a number of activities to uplift and support um, the lowest, most marginalized and exploited people. And that involves starting schools, political parties, um, as a jurist, as a barrister, um, he takes up Dalit rights. And most importantly, perhaps, for the telling of the story that I am offering, he got very involved in satyagraha movements, movements that were nonviolent to, to get access for Dalits to public water tanks and to Hindu temples. So this was especially in the late 20s and into the mid-30s. Um, those movements were not supported by Gandhi and the Congress Party. Um, Gandhi explicitly spoke against these movements and they failed. A lot of years of nonviolent protest to get access to public water tanks and to get access to Hindu temples did not work. And those years of unsuccessful, nonviolent protest ultimately led Ambedkar to the conclusion that reforming the caste system was not possible. So there were a lot of um, reformers, like Ambedkar, who wanted to do away with untouchability. There were many, many, many progressive Hindus and many people in the Congress party who wanted to do away with untouchability. Ambedkar came to the view that you couldn't do away with untouchability without doing away with caste, which is articulated in his famous book, The Annihilation of Caste. And just for a little bit of sympathetic, a sympathetic moment from Ambedkar himself, in that book, even as he is deeply critical of caste and of Hinduism, he argues there that caste is at the heart of Hinduism, that the caste system is a system of graded inequality in which you have resentment and hatred of the ones who are above, contempt for the ones who are below, and the ones who are at the lowest levels do not have access to education or arms and therefore can't improve their situation. The ones who are in the middle resent the ones who are above 
but they are too attached to their privileges to try to change the system. This, he thinks, is at the heart of Hinduism. He also makes very clear that he doesn't think that Hindus who participate in the structural violence, even some of the direct violence, what today we might also talk about as epistemic violence, cultural violence, that Hindus who participate in that are not themselves bad people. It's a good thing to keep in mind as all of us think about things like white privilege and um, hierarchical situations in our context here more locally. It's not that Hindus are bad people, but they, he says, are caught up in a set of cultural religious practices which lead them to think that acting in these ways that end up causing exploitation, subordination, violence, that end up ex marginalizing large groups of people to the edges of village life so that they cannot participate in communal life and live dependent upon the um, dependent upon caste Hindus in the village. But that has to do with a cultural, spiritual, social arrangement and not with anybody actually being bad necessarily. So very famously at a conference at Yola, he says, as was referenced in the clip, I had the misfortune of being born a Hindu, but I have the choice and I will not die a Hindu. And he then has come to the point that reforming the caste system, reforming Hinduism, he thinks is a lost cause. And he looks around, and a lot of people are looking at him, Sikhs, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, who want him to convert to their religion. And eventually he chooses Buddhism. But even though we're celebrating the conversion that happened in October of 1956, in my mind, the conversion is already happening in the 1950s, I mean the 1930s at this time. Because he articulates the conversion and the move to Buddhism in such clearly political terms, Ambedkar's Buddhism is often thought of as instrumental, as instrumentally political and sometimes therefore thought of as not really Buddhist. And that is particularly true because certainly in the West, and also to some degree in India, he's often thought of as a constitutionalist. Because he became the first law minister under an independent India, and then Nehru appointed him as chair of the drafting committee for the constitution. How many more minutes do I have? A few. Um, he was chair of the drafting committee. He's often regarded as the main architect of the Indian constitution. He's often thought of as primarily a political thinker. But one of the things that he comes to really emphasize is that even as universal rights are articulated in the constitution, Without a spiritual, moral, religious transformation, those rights mean nothing. In a democracy, he says, the majority could commit crimes, the majority could commit atrocities, the majority could practice subordinating behaviors, 
But it's only really a crime that is punished if one person does it. If one person commits a crime, they're punished. But if everybody is doing it, he gets this from Edmund Burke. And what he says is that what we need really to make this democracy work, our maitri, our benevolence, compassion, karuna, transformation of the mind, training of the mind. His argument is that what democracy really is, is a system where when we fight with others, we don't bloody them so bad that we remain antagonists. We engage with them so that we can continue to build community. We engage with them so that we can continue to eat together, to live together, to share a communal life. And that, he thinks, is what Buddhist practice is largely about. It sounds as if it could be primarily instrumental and political. And in many ways, it is political. Um, but it is not a rejection of many of the classical orientations to practice, whereby one cultivates a mind, one cultivates the Brahma-viharas, such as Maitri and Karuna. So the conversion then, as I want to think about it, really starts in the 1930s, culminates in 1956, but already the years leading up to that conversion in 1956, he is becoming a deeply spiritually oriented man. A man who sees spiritual practice as the very condition for a healthy democracy. And for him, all violence really, all suffering is not as one might think of with the Four Noble Truths. For him, violence is really the violence that comes from social subordination. And so for him, Buddhism is deeply about becoming the kind of people who can be open to others across difference of groups, not be caught up in outgroup antithapy, but rather to find commonality, to see in the vulnerable bodies of others um, a body with whom one can share food, a body with whom one can marry across caste lines. So those are a few contextualizing words about what Ambedkar's conversion means to me. And I look forward to hearing my colleagues on this panelist, on this panel say more. That really uh, contextualizes the situation. That he said that uh, reformation of the world cannot be possible by uh, unless you reformation uh, you reform your own mind. And uh, he says that my battle is not for political gain or for uh, any any wealth, but my battle is essentially spiritual. So. Maybe I would like to then uh, invite Professor Thorath uh, uh, after uh, William. Good evening. <laughs> Let me begin with a, with a profound thank and appreciation to Santosh Raut uh, and the director of the Center for Religion at the university that they have given us this uh, excellent opportunity to to celebrate and perhaps also discuss the conversion of Dr. Ambedkar, which happened about 67 
year before, three days before, that's 14th of October, 1956. Uh, friends, the, the main theme of this uh, discussion is the role of Dr. Ambedkar through Buddhism in elevating the marginalized section of the Indian society. <coughs> In this context, therefore, I decided to sort of share with you my views on Dr. Ambedkar's perspective on convergent to Buddhism. And I sort of take a position that this convergent to Buddhism was with the intention of restructuring Indian society towards equality, liberty, and fraternity, uh, replacing uh, the Hindu society, which is uh, governed by the rule of inequality, lack of freedom, and anti-social freedom, anti-social attitude. Therefore, uh, what I will do is I will confine to the view of Dr. Ambedkar, or rather interpretation of Dr. Ambedkar of Buddhism through his writing. A very, very excellent background has been given by Professor William Delegates. He, he really captured the the early childhood and the education of Dr. Ambedkar. Mm -hmm. I will therefore confine to uh, Dr. Ambedkar's views and perspective uh, on Buddhism as an instrument, as an ideology for the transformation of Indian society, taking towards the goal of equity, liberty, brotherhood. Mm -hmm. uh, Ambedkar, with more than 5,000 depressed class people converted to Buddhism uh, 67 years before on October 14, 1956 at Nagpur, Maharashtra. We have seen that uh, documentary. And this was perhaps the largest conversion in India after the spread of Buddhism during Buddha's period after BC 600, before Christ 600, and later after the King Ashoka in BC 2053. And ever since 1956, there has been a conversion of ex-untouchable and other depressed classes also uh, in various provinces, provinces in India. Officially, as in today, in 2020, the total population or, or Buddhists uh, constitute about 1% of India's population. Almost from a zero to 1% is a, is a big achievement, and that all credit goes to Dr. Ambedkar. Now the issue is what was the goal of Dr. Ambedkar, what was the mission of Dr. Ambedkar for conversion which has been explained. I will use, I will use two documents, two writings of Dr. Ambedkar in order to make the point. Dr. Ambedkar has not written much on uh, Buddhism as much. His, his outstanding book is of course Buddha and his Dhamma, that's, the, that's a major source to understand what are his views on uh, Buddhism, although he has given lectures but the main source is Buddha and his Dhamma, which he, he wrote. And the 22 O's uh, administered at the time of conversion, which we have seen here. It seems obvious from these two writings that Dr. Ambedkar's goal, goal was to reconstruct and rebuild the Hindu society around the principle of equality, liberty, or individual freedom, fraternity, and brotherhood replacing the inequitous and unfree social order of which the low caste, particularly the untouchables, were the worst victim. 
Ambedkar spent considerable academic energy to understand the causes of inequality and the and the situation of the untouchable, deprived situation of the untouchable during the 1920s and the 30s. His search led him to believe that the sources, source of the deprived situation and inequality was the caste system, as has been rightly pointed out, which he mentioned in a lecture, Annihilation of Caste, in 1936. He also understood that the caste system was not a standalone social institution. This is very important. This point has been made by William. Uh, he also under understood that the caste system was not a standalone social institution, but it was constituent an integral part of the Brahmanical religion. I won't use the word Hindu religion. Hindu word came around 1000 AD. But Dr. Ambedkar, all his writing, he used the Brahmanical religion or Vedic religion. Ambedkar observed the iniquitous caste system was a divinely prescribed way of life as a religious doctrine. It has become incarnated in Hindu society and is shaped and molded in his thought and in doing. So he's bringing out a connection of caste system and untouchability with Hindu religion, uh, Brahmanical religion. Therefore, Dr. Ambedkar made an appeal. He was convinced by 1930. Uh, he made an appeal to Hindus in annihilation of caste, as a matter of fact, for the reform of Hindu religion. And later announced the plan to leave Hindu religion and convert to other religion to secure equality, dignity to the untouchable. From 1935 onward, I think it's a coincidence that he declared that he will, he was born as a Hindu, but he won't die as a Hindu. That was on 13th of October, 1935. So 20 years later, he converted to Buddhism. He waited for 20 years for Hindus to reform, to come forward for the reform of the caste system and Hindu religion, but there was no response. And therefore, then, he took a decision to convert to the Buddhism. Now, as I said, the, the goal was certainly that reform of caste system would not help, reform of untouchability would not help. He has started a civil rights movement in 20s and 30. It is only the change of religion uh, would help. And therefore, rebuilding necessarily involved when he was talking of rebuilding, the rebuilding necessarily involved replacement of one by another, wrong by right. Here for Dr. Ambedkar, rebuilding of Hindu society was replacement of Brahmanism by Buddhism as the governing doctrine of way of life for Hindu people. Two sources, namely the book Buddha and his Dhamma and the 22 woes administered by him to the follower on October 14, 1956, at the time of conversion to Buddhism, clearly bring out this. If you look at these two writings, they have two separate parts, very interestingly. One part talks about the negation and rejection, and another part talks about the acceptance, dealing with the principles which he reject. And Dr. Ambedkar very meticulously saw to it in this book, Buddha and Dhammad, that each point he made, he made that point quoting Buddha. He only offered the interpretation, but he quoted Buddha on each of the important points. This tells us the mission of Dr. Ambedkar to replace the religious ideology of Brahmanism, support you of inequality, lack of individual freedom, lack of fraternity, with Buddhism, which promote equality, equal status, freedom, fraternity, and brotherhood. Similar differences are also are in religious preaching also. Now, what he rejected? Dr. Ambedkar has a good section in Buddha and his Dhamma. 
he rejected Vedic Brahmanism, quoting Buddha. And what are Dr. Ambedkar's views? Very briefly, I will mention. What is the main religious and social doctrine of the philosophy of Vedic Brahmanism in the early stages of, say, around BC 1500 to 1000? In Ambedkar's view, the quarrel between Buddhism and Brahmanism was a issue, and that was the difference was what is truth? How do we interpret truth? What can be accepted as truth? And he described the main feature of Brahmanism then, which, of course, he attributed to the downfall of untouchable and a massive inequality in Indian society. I just mentioned the main point so that we can capture what he negates, what Buddha negates. The Brahmin doctrine of truth was that it was something to which was declared by Vedas. Veda are sacred and infallible and hence not to be questioned. Veda ordained that God created physical and human universe. Salvation of human being or well-being lies in Vedic sacrifices and observation of religious rites and ceremonies and the offering of gift to the God through Brahmin priest. Brahminism believe in life after death, that is rebirth. Brahminism also believe in soul and karma and its linkages with rebirth. The present life is determined by the karma in the past and the future birth determined by karma in the present. Thus the present is fixed, given and cannot be changed. The karma is carried through the soul which is eternal with which decide the rebirth. Brahminism believed sacrifices of animals in rituals and hence supported violence or hinsa. Now this is as far as the religious ideology of Vedic Brahminism is concerned, which Dr. Ambedkar has described in Buddha and in Samma, in a very simple word. This was a book written for the ordinary people. But the Vedism or Brahminism had also the theory of uh, so society, ideal society. And Ambedkar outlined the feature of the caste system, which is the ideal Hindu society. Caste system is a binding and unquestionable because it is given in Vedas, and Vedas are infallible, not to be questioned. Caste system is created by God from the different part of his body. The first rule is that the society is divided into four classes, or five castes, based on the graded inequality and bounded with each other by unequal rights and privileges. Occupation of each caste are fixed by birth. One class cannot trespass the occupation of other. Rules is that no social equality among the four five caste. Rule gives right to education to three classes, three castes, but not to Shudra and the woman. Half of the population, women, they did not have right to education. Fifth feature is that man's life is divided into four stages. Uh, Brahmacharya, Grohasthama, then uh, Sannyasa and others. First and the last stage was not open to the Shudra and the woman. Thus, the Vedic Brahmanical ideal society is based on the Varana or caste with unequal right across caste, with immense privileges to the Brahmin at the cost of the denial of economic, civil, and religious right to the vast majority of the low caste. The motive behind religious and social philosophy is thus economic, power, and high social status. There is hardly anything spiritual about it. The caste as a social organizer of Hindu is supported by Rig Veda and all other Vedas and other Brahmanical religious tests. In a volume called uh, Volume 4, uh, Riddle of Hinduism is the title. Dr. Ambedkar has studied all the religious, okay, all the religious uh, tests and pointed out that they contain the reference to caste, which include Gita, Manusmriti, uh, Puranas, Ramayana, Mahabharata. There is no Hindu test which has not supported the caste system. Now let me come very quickly. 
what is the alternative that he has given in the form of Buddhism? And again, uh, this is from Buddha and his Dhamma. Buddhism emerged in BC 600 as a counter to Brahmanism, which did not recognize religious and social philosophy of Vedic Brahmanism. That is the rejection that has come up. Ambedkar interpreted Buddhism in a manner such that on each of the points, the Buddha's position is counterposed against Brahmanism. This amount to offering an alternative religious and social philosophy and to build up the social relation on those alternative principles, making Buddhism an emancipatory, laboratory pro liberatory project, or what we use, liberation theology. He doesn't use theology, he uses ideology, but it's close to the idea of liberation theology, if we draw a parallel from discourse from Christianity. Let us mention Ambedkar's position, uh, which uh, Ambedkar has quoted Buddha on each of these points very briefly. On truth, to Buddha, the truth was something which is supposed to be by, uh, supported by proof and experience, to which a person experience and bear witness, and also perception, logic, and rationalism as a basis of understanding truth and generating knowledge. Buddha defeated Vedas are infallible and their authority is non-questionable. Nothing is final. Everything should be subject to re-examination and, and reconsideration. Freedom of thought was essential. No belief in efficacy in rites, ceremonies, sacrifice as a means of obtaining human being. No sacrifice. Buddha made distinction between true sacrifice and false sacrifice. Self-denial for good of other is a true sacrifice, but not sacrifice in terms of killing of animal as a ritual. Denied caste system. Denied belief in God as the creator and Brahma as the principal underlying universe. No belief in Atma or soul. No belief in karma based on the past deed. Opposed violence and refuted the theory of God created by universe. Okay. So these are some of the uh, rejection that comes from Buddha. The objective of Dr. Ambedkar in Buddha and his Dhamma is counterpose Buddhism vis-a-vis -vis the Brahmanical ideology. So I will not go, I, I will avoid the other differences uh, of Buddha, but basically then what alternative Buddha has given? Buddha has given the alternative, and I will write, read out very quickly, that Dhamma is social, Dhamma is righteousness, which means right relation between man and man in all sphere of life. Thus one man, if he is alone, does not need Dhamma. This is the sentence that I pick up from Buddha and his Dhamma. When there are two men living in relation to each other, they must decide what should be the relation between them so that the both benefit out of the relationship. For men to behave with each other in righteousness so that well-being of all the is maximized. And that ideology, again, I don't want to go into greater detail. It has been mentioned very clearly. Uh, the Panchasilas and the Eightfold Path. This is what, in summary, he has given. I don't have a time to... Uh, go into detail. But he also rejected the theory of karma based on the past deed. He also rejected the existence of soul, and he, he also denied the uh, existence of rebirth. There is a special interpretation of Dr. Ambedkar about the rebirth, rebirth of whom and rebirth of what. If you believe rebirth of what, then Buddha believe in rebirth, but rebirth of same person Buddha denied. So this is what uh, I think what Dr. Ambedkar did in Buddha and his Dhamma is to counterpose Buddhism vis-a-vis -vis the Brahman, Vedic Brahmanism. Some of, some of the point he has modified, and this was all with the intention of rebuilding society, uh, highly unequal society on the basis of uh, Buddhism. So I think 
both on the religious side but also on the social side, society side. Vaidism believes in caste system. Ambedkar quote Buddha, and it's very powerful, I want to read it out. Buddha opposed caste system, roots and branches. What a powerful word he has brought out. Worth not, birth is the measure of a man. Must promote equality between man and man. Oppose religion which recommend action that brings happiness to oneself by causing sorrow to other. You can see that the, the advantage of high caste are at the cost of the denial of right to the untouchable. So this is what I think uh, I briefly summarize. Now, same thing has happened in 22 O's. If you read the 22 O's, uh, there, are, there are 22 O's, 1 to 8 are rejection. I don't want to read it. There is a list here. But 8 onward, they are acceptance, Buddhism. So the same approach you follow in the, in the, in the conversion also. Now, I will make uh, I'll just a five minute and stop then. Is that, and this is a very important point in present context, so I'm buying five minutes from Rashikar Mundu's presentation. <laughs> is that, that, that Dr. Ambedkar interpreted Indian history as a struggle between Brahmanism and Buddhism, as a struggle between equity and non-equity. And then he, he said that the the, the struggle between Brahmanism and Buddhism is not a one-time events. It, is, it has happened throughout the history. And so he developed a theory of interpretation of Indian history, what is called revolution and counter-revolution. That there has been a revolution by Buddha and Ashoka, but there was a counter-revolution of, of, of Brahmanism uh, in the later period, which it was so significantly important that it led to the downfall and demise of the Buddhism altogether from the soil of its origin. Even before Buddha, there was a counter-revolution. You had a Vedic Brahmanism, there was what is called Sramanism, which was opposing the principle of uh, uh, Brahmanism. Now, just I want to summarize by saying that his theory of history is, is nothing but a struggle between Brahmanism and Buddhism, that is a struggle between having a society uh, based on equality against inequality, having a religious ideology which believe in rationalism, empirical fact, as against those which believe in God, rituals, and all that. Now, what has happened is that today, the same uh, approach is being used. In 1944, in, in Madras, Dr. Ambedkar says that we are living in a world, in a period of counter-revolution, that is rise of Brahmanism. Buddhism was no, nowhere there in 1944. It is Dr. Ambedkar who revived it. And he said that we are living in uh, counter-revolution. And if you see today, uh, is that there is a massive effort on the part of the group to revive Brahmanism, to revive Brahmanical religi religious ideology, and also to revive casteism. Uh, there are there are there are written statement and statement by the people who talks about replacing constitution by Vedic Brahmanism, replacing constitution by Manusmuti, replacing constitution by Sanatan Dharma, because constitution was a revelation. When your entire Hindu society is based on inequality, lack of freedom, when you accept the constitution, we talk of equality, fraternity. It was a revelation. So in order to uh, sort of counter the constitution, 
you find that the counter revolution is on i do not i don't have a time uh, i have this i will ask santosh to circulate to all of you who are interested that what is the nature of present counter revolution the present counter revolution follow the same method of accommod accommodation and assimilation it follow the same method of violence against those who talk about uh, equity and alternative ideologies and and that counter, counter revolution which which started in 2000 bc by manu continues today in the present time i think uh, with this few observation i conclude thank you well the, the kingdom of righteousness that's what the buddha uh, used and that's what dr ambedkar expressed uh, now i'd like to uh, say that what he has rejected and what he accepted was a, a very peaceful means he adopted in the process of transformation of society and i think more need to talk about buddhism uh, and the ideas that he interpreted it in modern time to have a inputs for a liberation theology uh, maybe i would like to invite now rashikar wonru for uh, his presentation it's a beautiful evening thank you all of you for coming over for a very significant and uh, it's going to be a very important event for the future here we are sitting trying to understand about dr b r ambedkar and his role in bringing back buddhism in india and he brings it to the oppressed classes or the marginalized classes of india i'm extremely thankful to have a divinity school center for the study of world religions buddhist ministry initiative the director is entire uh, staff and faculty and of course dr santosh raut is also called his buddhist name is maitri veer nagarjuna he is a honorary director of uh, an institute called nagaloka in nagpur and uh, every weekend he runs away from his university after teaching buddhist aesthetics to nagpur and he runs running an institute is not very easy he tries to do it thank you so much all of you every one of you having come over here very beautiful talk by dr william he has introduced so beautifully about dr b r ambedkar to all of us and his struggle the initiative when we are talking about oppressed classes every society in the world civilizations have oppressed a section has oppressed the other section it's a civilizational aspect and there's be always been a struggle and a fight and the powerful class wants to continue to oppress but we have a unique situation we had a unique situation still have a unique situation in india the scriptural sanction for the oppression is something different and the scriptural sanction is written in the scriptures and what actually happened when dr b r ambedkar was studying the the religion 
during the British colonial period, lot of Indian scriptures in Sanskrit and other language was translated into English. So now we know, Dr. B. R. Ambedkar came, comes to know, where is, the, where is the oppressive character of those uh, scriptural sanctions? And he goes about it. He goes about it. And that is the unique journey Dr. Ambedkar takes to understand and, and to emancipate the oppressed classes. But it was not Dr. B. R. Ambedkar alone who tried to do it. In fact, Dr. Williams was mentioning about it. I'd like to mention four saints before him. They, they attained sainthood. And of course, Baba's, Dr. B. R. Ambedkar became a saint in, in the Buddhist tradition. Bodhisattva. We have two stupas, Buddhist stupas, uh, for him. One in uh, Mumbai, another one in Nagpur, with his ashes kept here there in a Buddhist tradition. So four saints, poet saints, came before him. From Tamil Nadu in southern India, Nandanar, he, he was the first to oppose the caste system. He recited poetry, but he was fighting within the, within the Hindu religion. So he, he, was a, he was a worshiper of Siva. It's called Shaivism. And he tried to enter the temple. He was denied. So goes on the story. So he was dying. His, all his poetry is about, I'd like to look at the, see the God at least once. Because in, 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 in temples, they, they close the doors in the evening or during certain periods. That was, that was in, Nandanar was in the 8th century. Then we have Chokamela from the land of Dr. B. R. Ambedkar. He was again a saint trying to enter the temple of Vitoba, under the form of a Hindu god. And again, he is denied. So he sings songs, he, he has, recites great poetry, yearning to be with the Lord or the God. Then we have uh, the most important saint called Saint Ravidas. Ravidas was a shoemaker. And he goes about talking about equality. He tries to talk to people, bring in people together. And he was, during the period of 15th and 16th century, Similarly, Saint Kabir, he was a weaver. And he again tried to reform Hinduism, tried to bring in people. Beautiful poetry. This, this period in, in, in the Indian history is called Bhakti Revolution. These are all called poet saints. That is how they could connect to the people. Interestingly, another religion, I don't know whether our school has really picked it up. The Sikhism, the most visible and prominent uh, new religion comparatively over the centuries. All these same poets of Kabir and Ravidas are in the holy book of Sikhism. It's called Guru Granth Sahib. Guru Granth, Adi Granth. Now what has happened when, when, when you try to reform a religion like it has happened in several religions. When you try to reform a religion, the religion is so strong that it comes back, like Professor Thorat told us, the counter-revolution. It comes back to you. All the followers of Ravidas, 
has made into a caste. Okay, all you Ravidasi, you are a caste. So the caste is called Ravidasi. Now the followers are Kabir, Kabir Panthi. Panth is the path, sect. sect. So they become caste. So what do we do about that? So when when these when these uh, the poet saints poetry got into the holy book of Sikhism, and uh, Sikhism is comparatively a beautiful religion. They don't have any rituals. Anybody can enter their uh, holy place anytime, and all are welcome. So it it is a, it is a, it is a kind of a reformed uh, religion. But again, even that religion, which is a new religion, got into the scourge of caste system. So what the Ravidasis, who became Sikhs, they separated their uh, Gurudwara, or the holy place of Sikhs. It's called Ravidas Gurudwara. You can find a lot of them. You type on the Google, you will find Ravidas Gurudwara, several of them in the US. I've seen myself in, in Pittsburgh, in California, in, in Seattle. You, you have one in New York. Maybe you might be having one in Boston. So how, when you try to reform a religion over the centuries, how they, they come back into, again, sex? This is, this is something interesting. So Dr. B.R. Ambedkar have all these people. In fact, he dedicated one of his books where he studied untouchability for these three saints, Ravidas, Chokamela, and Nandanar, he, he, he dedicates to them. So these emancipatory models in religion um, uh, tried to reform, but eventually they, they, became, they became a part of the caste. So when Dr. Ambedkar went about trying to understand, he faced, as Dr. Williams said, the political issue. In 1911 in India, under the British colonial period, there was a census. The census, for the first time, enumerated untouchables as a separate group. So suddenly, the, the, the untouchable leaders felt that, OK, this is my number. So I can claim political rights. Eventually, in 1930s, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, after studying in Colombia, goes back and uses the uh, census data, saying that, OK, I'm 9%. I would like to have 9% political representation in the legislative bodies. Here comes Mahatma Gandhi. He says, no, you are not a separate group. You are a part of Hindus. So here comes the fight between both of them, the friction between both of them. Gandhi wins. Gandhi wins. And he says that all the untouchables are Hindus. He, he legalizes that thing by uh, offering Hindu constituencies or electoral districts to untouchables. So we have elections in 37, 1937, and then it goes on. So when Dr. B.R. Ambedkar goes about studying who are untouchables, he brings in another very significant aspect. He tries to understand whether untouchables are a separate race. Are there a separate race? all racial factors, most of them anthropological factors, because when you suddenly go to India, you all the people look like us, and suddenly he is different caste, I'm a different caste, he's different caste. So he tries to understand, is there a racial thing about uh, untouchables or the caste system? 
B.R. Ambedkar in a very significant study, it's a one-off study, he says there is no racial aspect to caste system. And he, and he tells us that the untouchables were broken men, they were thrown out of the society and made to do work or menial work to, to be called as untouchables. He has another theory through several, um, he, he quotes several texts and he says when Buddhism was waning away, it was almost dying, the left out Buddhists, Buddhists were treated by the powerful regimes of those times and they were pushed out of the society and made into untouchables. There are two theories of, of, of origin and he rejects, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar rejects the Aryan theory of migration. He says nobody came to India, nobody occupied India, it is all the people belong to India and they became different classes and groups. So this was his journey. But he gets, when Dr. B.R. Ambedkar gets the first opportunity, before conversion, he writes the Indian constitution. That was his first attack against the caste system. He creates a beautiful constitution. And the, one of the most important things, along with Gandhi, it was also a Gandhi's campaign to abolish untouchability. The first of all, they abolish untouchability. The way we abolished, America abolished slavery. He, and in fact, Dr. B. R. Ambedkar was here, right in uh, New York, when um, the former slaves were sitting and trying to understand what was happening to uh, 50 years of slavery. He was right in, in Harlem, in, in maybe in Columbia University, trying to understand slavery, abolition of slavery. So he pushes the abolition of untouchability in the Indian Constitution and brings in equality, liberty, and fraternity. It is a core aspect of the Indian constitution and gives us beautiful fundamental rights. So that was his first attempt to break the caste system and emancipate the oppressed. But for him to understand democracy, he says democracy is a form of government where revolutionary changes in the society can be brought about in a social and economic manner without bloodshed. He says that is what is democracy. Our democracy should work towards that. So that is how he moves towards the emancipatory aspects. And of course, the, the way Dr. William and Professor Thorat and, and our clipping and Dr. Santosh have told us, he gets into the conversion. I'm not going into the conversion part, <coughs> but he understands he looks, at he looks at the option of Sikhism very seriously. He seriously looked at the option of Sikhism because Sikhism is devoid of the ritual, devoid of the ritual. Uh, to, to have a marriage, there, there, is no, there is no muhurat the way we, we do at particular time to be fixed for a marriage. Anybody can get into the Gurudwara, get married, get out of the Gurudwara. And, and you can enter the Gurudwara at any time, worship the holy book, sit and listen. So it is a kind of an emancipatory religion, but it also got into the caste. So he, he thought about Sikhism. And, and maybe Dr. Williams is right, politically not ripe. So he waited and he comes. Here we are because of Dr. B.R. Ambedkar. And uh, on my personal note, in the 50, on the 50th year of the celebration of conversion in 2006, 
I converted to Buddhism in a huge program in Hyderabad and maybe New Delhi. We had a huge gathering. It was a celebratory moment. And we all, Dr. Santosh Rao was on stage and he was again talking to us like this. These were the moments. Now what happens? We are going ahead. What has happened with these, with these Dr. Ambedkar's Buddhists? Last year, one of the biggest and the largest Buddhist stupa was constructed in a state uh, of Hyderabad in India. Largest. According to my understanding, after Buddhism has waned away in India, the first ever attempt to recreate a full-fledged Buddhist stupa was done by the followers of Dr. B. R. Ambedkar in India. That is the journey, the legacy, and the beauty of, and the impact of Dr. B. R. Ambedkar's followers. Thank you so much for giving me this. Well, we have been studying a lot of theologians and the history of religions uh, in divinity school. And I try to rethink about what Dr. Ambedkar was trying to do, the concept of religion itself, what that should be. And he, he sort of uh, uh, gives the criteria that it should be, uh, religion is antithesis to uh, slavery. No discrimination should be done. And he says that it should be based on uh, uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity. What fraternity he meant by Buddha's freedom, actually, not just a political slogan. Uh, still, lot long way to go to understand the Buddhist vision of Dr. Ambedkar, where he's trying to really address the notion of mind. Caste is a notion of mind, and that's the problem uh, many uh, uh, of uh, Indian society or thinkers not able to understand, they treat as a social and mere political problem. Even institutions and the religious institution that has been come up, they carry those notions. And that's the uh, uh, mission Dr. Ambedkar had, is spiritual values can really transform the society and politics, not mere institutionalized uh, setups. Monastic from, the, uh, from monastic to the humanistic, as he expresses. Anyway, so if you have any questions now, uh, your questions are welcome. Actually, we are sort of running out of time, but maybe a couple of questions or, yeah, please. Uh, okay. <laughs> because of lack of time, I could not uh, explain. As I mentioned earlier, that the in Buddha and his Dhamma, you will see that he has taken the Brahmin concept of rebirth, soul, and karma, and then give the alternative uh, views of Buddha on rebirth, karma, and soul. Now, the interpretation of Ambedkar of Buddha is as follows. The Brahminism believe in rebirth. 
man dies and his material part get the big submerged with the materials in the universe but soul is supposed to be eternal permanent so whatever did you do those impressions are on the soul and it is the soul which takes the birth of the same person so in brahmanism the rebirth through soul is the rebirth of the same person who dies now ambedkar interpret buddha's rebirth in a different way he said that uh, Buddha does not believe in rebirth of the same person. When same person dies, uh, his material element became the part of the existing stock of the material element. There is no soul, which is eternal. But rebirth can be conceived in this form, and that is rebirth of what and rebirth of whom. And Dr. Ambedkar interpreted that rebirth of same person is impossible. Uh, there is no soul so there is no question of having the rebirth of the same person but when the person dies and his all physical element air uh, energy became a part of the stock of the air and energy so all take all living being are created through that common stock so to that extent what we can say rebirth of of the same materials element and not the same person so buddha was a supporter of rebirth but rebirth of what and re- not rebirth of form not the rebirth of the same person then there are then, then there are there is a views about karma theory which i could not explain because lack of time the brahmanical theory say that the your present life is determined by the past deed which come through the soul and the future life will be determined by the present uh, deed and it is the deed which will decide your birth whether you are low caste or high caste buddha reject this all ambedkar interpreted karma theory of buddha ambedkar place in one sentence as you sow so do you reap so your present life is determined by your present effort because that is positive it gives incentive to you to work hard because in the present life itself you will get the reward but brahmanical theory said that your present life is determined by the past there is no scope for change you have to live as untouchable live as untouchable in fact karma theory was brought in support of caste system thank you Is it well, clear? Yeah, it's okay? Uh, yes. I still remember uh, in my village His Holiness came and I asked the same question and he said that the, there is a concept of rebirth in Buddhism. Problem is when you club that with the caste. Problem is the club with the fixity. That's the problem. And that's what he very rightly corrected in two sentences. That's what Dr. Ambedkar was referring to the Milind Panno. Milind Panno. You flame the Uh, one candle to the another but are you passing the same flame or is a new flame so that's what dr ambedkar hinted uh, uh, in his uh, some marathi writing and that's what he erected two institutions milind college and naksen uh, campus that's the model he used probably uh, he that's not in the formal writing he expressed that to the one person whom i met who died recently uh, what dr ambedkar said to him maybe Yeah, uh, maybe I'll take uh, Mary's question. Oh, I have a question about the last thing you just said, Santosh, and thank you all very much. Um, do, and sort of open to anyone, um, do you feel that if he were here today, he would say that we're in another moment of moving from the monastic to the humanist in terms of thinking as a world together And is there anything um, from his teachings that you think would be useful for us 
as students mm. to consider mm. in being able to help translate mm. these ideas of moving from the monastic to the humanist, the idea that we're in a shifting moment, like anything that would be useful to consider. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. <clears throat> the move from the monastic to the humanistic, for those of you maybe who've read the Buddha and his Dhamma, you remember at the beginning, it's not that he's totally rejecting the monastic, but he's rejecting a certain vision of what the monastic has been taken to be by some people. Namely, th an idea of the monastic as devoted solely to their own practice. I think Ambedkar recognizes that in many Buddhist traditions, there are other understandings of what a bhikkhu, of what a monastic is. That is, a person not necessarily just oriented towards their own realization or their own awakening, but somebody who is serving a larger social, um, social purpose. And for him, he's very clear, the bhikkhu, the monastic, is really there as a servant of the society, as somebody who is cultivating themselves not for their own benefit exclusively, but is cultivating themselves to serve others. So in that sense, is this something that is relevant today? I think yes, as somebody who works at a Dharma center, it is very clear that many, many people who come to the Dharma Center where I work are deeply interested in what the social implications are for their own practice, what the social implications are for Buddhism in general. I don't think Buddhism is unique in this. There are plenty of Christian traditions and other traditions. This is, we are living in a moment where any religious tradition that doesn't address some of these issues um, is clearly not addressing the issues that are really alive in the contemporary people. So I don't know if that actually answers your question. The main point, the main thrust is that Buddhist practice is not for oneself, especially for the people who are most committed to the practice, the bhikkhus, but it is something that is serving others. And it's interesting. I believe there's a lot in Theravada traditions that resonates with this. But Ambedkar, at very particular moments, articulates Mahayana views that come in, like his view of emptiness um, and a view of the Bodhisattva path. Um, so yeah, does anybody else want to add more? Right. And I th no, I think you are right. I think he was. Uh, uh, saying that uh, function of dhamma is to reconstruct the society and self. That's the function of the dhamma. Uh, unless you do not reconstruct yourself, you can't reform other. Otherwise, often, I, uh, I must say this, often Ambedkar is negatively interpreted than the positively understood. That's the problem even scholars on Ambedkar face. It's often... Uh, uh, the criticism that uh, uh, on him that is negative interpretation that the positive constructionism. So he was saying that Dhamma can be the seed where you can uh, dismantle the idea that I am born this 
such and such class or caste or race or color exactly what buddha encountered with hohunke jati the fifth week of enlightenment na jaccha vaslo hoti na jaccha hoti bamano kamuna vaslo hoti kamuna hoti bamano is only you are not determined by your birth but is a kamuna is your actions that recast yourself and monks and the monastic life is a sort of a model and representation of that they are sort of exhibiting that uh, sample to rest of the world but if it becomes so much individualistic or exclusiveness that would be the problem then rest the why sangha was formed because buddha wanted his teaching to be alive in a person not as a abstract idea in the book is a living experience sangha is a living experience it's not an abstract idea uh, we uh, is is a sangha kaya what i call like buddha lived so gave a buddha kaya buddha was there to to teach after his death uh, uh, or prenirvana uh, masters revived that dhamma sort of sustained in a dhamma kaya but how dhamma kaya will sustain it will only sustain in a sangha kaya sangha needs to be alive and if it is too formalist that buddha's dhamma might be just frozen to the uh, monastic communities i don't think any monastic community actually wants that it's only institutions that sort of makes it rigid so i think he was trying to break through and i'm sure all great masters have did efforts to break through the institutionalized system to the uh, flow dhamma for liberation of everyone maybe last yeah <laughs> okay okay this is um maybe i'll address dr woodrow um in indian society is there a recognition that when a person converts to buddhism that they can have a new life like i imagine you might convert to buddhism and then people say but you're still the same person you were before because that's how they see you but i'm hoping there's a certain amount of a category where you can make that kind of personal declaration and it receives some resonance from others but i'm not sure how what your experience or the general situation is very interesting um the the uh, my conversion or lot of people who moved into buddhism was uh, the ambedkar's path we took certainly a rejection of uh, the existing religion we were born in and trying to understand buddha it is not that, that now that i've converted i'm as conversant as him or as conversant as uh, santosh raut on buddhism but it is a rejection of the existing dogmas and we feel certainly in the movie uh, dr ambedkar i'm liberated so it's 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 a frame of mind that you are liberated and certainly proudly i can go say around that if there is a ritual to be celebrated because the majority religion being a hindu religion i would certainly say okay today is that celebration i don't celebrate this or i'm not i'm not going to do this so it that rejection of the dogmatic thing is a proud thing and and that i'm i'm different i'm liberated and i'm moving forward this is the kind of a feeling we have thank you interesting question um hi my name is pranay i'm from the kennedy school um my question is 
there's dual identities uh, that were mentioned in a, in the political realm followers of dr ambedkar are called ambedkarites some ambedkarites also converted and they hold the spiritual identity of being a buddhist do you think these two identities are going to coexist stronger than ever in the future or do you think the political identity is going to take a more stronger view over the spiritual identity as you look at the future of how the religion and politics is going to manifest in india see when we look at the political identity now we are going to use a new term called the dalit identity so even i am a spiritual as a buddhist but certainly i'm the dalit when it comes to politics so the buddhist ambedkarite buddhist politics have never been a separate uh, realm in 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 the entirety there's never been a separate thing till now what we have seen in the politics till now uh, maharashtra state is the only example where they they tried to create certain things but it was not that so india is very complex when you look at the identity politics because of the way if you look at uttar pradesh the ravidasi chamar jatav is that identity which also gets into politics if you go into andhra pradesh there's a mala madiga andhra pradesh and telangana so these multiple identities but the universal identity singularly or scheduled caste as a dalit on the political identity i don't personally look whether if, if some people are christians or some people are hindus practicing or non practicing hindus most of the dalits are non practicing hindus if they are into hinduism they they try to go with the go with the general society so i have not seen a separate dalit hindu or dalit buddhist or a dalit christian going to the political separately that's what i look at thank you vilas I just want to add, and I have a question to all of you. So, what I see Ambedkarite Buddhism, or the perspective of Buddhism from Ambedkar, in the Western world, it can be termed as engaged Buddhism. And engaged Buddhism, I think, we mostly hear from Tignathan. And Ambedkar gave this engaged Buddhism idea even before Tignathan. So, I think if somebody can speak on engaged Buddhism, that that kind of relates very easily in the Western kind of world. First, I just want to say, appreciate everybody sticking around. It is late. It's a long day. There's a lot of words, and um, I really appreciate everybody sticking with this. So Thich Nhat Hanh actually gets the term engaged Buddhism from a Chinese Buddhist, Taishu, who cultivates or describes something as Buddhism for human life. Um, and so there's a prehistory to Thich Nhat Hanh. There's also very much a prehistory of engaged Buddhism in India to Ambedkar. If anybody's interested, Douglas Ober has a wonderful book called Dust on the Throne, which just came out this year, maybe, or last year, but about the history of anti-caste Buddhists that Ambedkar is building on. And actually, Charlie Hallisey had a student here about 10 years ago who wrote a wonderful doctoral dissertation on just this theme. Um, so, I do think the short, so getting back to your question, Ambedkar is reg widely regarded as a preeminent socially engaged Buddhist here. Um, and 
And I think in that sense, he's with people like Buddha Dasa, Thich Nhat Hanh, others. Ambedkar is such an interesting, rich figure. You know, his, his, in English, his, select, his collected writings and speeches are 17 volumes of 14,000 pages. That doesn't include the Marathi. And Ambedkar is having a moment. If any of you are students and thinking about working on Ambedkar, there is an enormous amount of interest today and not a huge number of people in the US who are working on Ambedkar. And so, yes, he's an engaged Buddhist, but in some ways, for me, I feel like calling him an engaged Buddhist as if we then understand him, circumscribes him too narrowly, that he's such a big, vast figure doing so many different things, even within his Buddhism. Um, but yes, he's also an engaged Buddhist. Thank you for your question. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, oh, sorry. See, uh, uh, some references has been given about engaged Buddhism, but you have Professor Christopher Queen from Harvard, who brought out a book on engaged Buddhism with the latest example, uh, covering India, Sri Lanka, Thailand, and also Bangladesh. I think the central point, in my view, uh, as far as the engaged Buddhism is concerned, and this can also be related to education, monasticism. See, the issue is that, uh, as far as Buddhist teaching is concerned, there are two aspects of it, and very vehemently emphasized by Buddha and also highlighted by Ambedkar. That Sponsors, Center for the Study of World Religions and Buddhist Ministry Initiative. Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.